previously on Conspiracy Land. 889 million, 63 million, and that's uh, for various artillery. The Bradley vehicles, that's the tanks, $1.2 billion, and we really have a great friendship, a great relationship. Thank you, Mr. President. We are the oldest ally, France of America and the Middle East. Right. Uh, more than 80 years uh, of alignments and big interest. And the foundation of the relation, it's really huge and really deep. In the... At least nine activists have been arrested in Saudi Arabia for championing women's rights and free speech. So simply by using that tool, they had the ability to see, to read, to listen. Simply they were controlling my phone. I was like, oh my God, this is damning. Because they were both discussing like very provocative plans to counter the Saudi regime. We both knew that we were in dangerous territory. And I kind of thought, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm a fucking American. I have a right to help a friend from another country. An 18-room mansion in Palm Beach has been pressed into service as a convalescent home for King Saud of Saudi Arabia, who is visited by President Kennedy. A visit to wish the monarch a speedy recovery. The absolute ruler of six million subjects in his oil-rich country, the king is recovering from eye and stomach surgery performed recently in Boston. In January 1962, President John F. Kennedy made a point of paying a personal visit to see the king of Saudi Arabia while he was recovering from medical surgery in Palm Beach, Florida. It was one of multiple trips to the United States by King Saud, a son of his country's founder, Ibn Saud, the same Ibn Saud who had met with Franklin Roosevelt aboard the USS Quincy in the waning days of World War II, giving birth to the U.S.-Saudi alliance. The son, Saud, his successor, was a notoriously weak and corrupt monarch. He was perhaps best known for spending lavishly on his 24 palaces while maintaining a harem estimated at 100 women. But Kennedy, like President Eisenhower before him, dutifully placated the Saudi king when he showed up in Washington a few weeks later, lest there be any disruption to the country's flow of oil that kept the American economy humming. So, Your Majesty, I can assure you of a warm welcome here in Washington and in the United States to you, to the members of your family who accompany you, to the members of your government. And we express the hope that this visit will be only one of a series which will mark uh, ever-increasingly intimate relations between uh, Saudi Arabia and the United States. Your Majesty, you're most welcome here. But privately, Kennedy had his qualms about Saud's kingdom as a U.S. ally. Nearly a century after the end of America's civil war, Saudi Arabia still practiced and officially sanctioned slavery. There were, by some estimates, more than 100,000 slaves in Saudi Arabia in the early 1960s, most of them Africans who had been trafficked to Saudi princes. Not great optics for an American president under pressure to back civil rights legislation at home, while waging a Cold War abroad that was often cast as a clash between Western freedom and Soviet slavery. Later that year, Saud's brother and rival, Crown Prince Faisal, came to Washington seeking U.S. support for a war against Egyptian-backed forces in Yemen. Kennedy raised the issue. If Riyadh wanted his support, it would be helpful if the Saudis did away with slavery within its borders. 
Bruce Rydell, a former Mideast analyst for the CIA, is a scholar of the U.S.-Saudi relationship. It's really an extraordinary moment. Uh, the Egyptians have just intervened in Yemen, and Saudi Arabia is now facing a revolutionary challenge on its southern frontier. Uh, and Faisal is looking for American support. And after the, the usual uh, security for oil strategic discussions and a discussion about Yemen, Kennedy invites Faisal into the family quarters of the White House, where he then says, it'll be very, very difficult for me to affect this relationship while the kingdom still practices slavery. And there on the spot, Faisal says, we will abolish slavery. Uh, he says, we will open up an education system, including to girls. And he makes uh, rather sweeping commitments. Now, he's not curtailing the police state. He's not giving up any of his powers as Saudi royal family. Uh, but he did agree to certain very fundamental changes uh, in the way the kingdom was operated, to take it out of the seventh century and maybe get it to the, the 19th century, or at least the, the, the mid-19th century. Rydell says the pressure that Kennedy put on Faisal was an important, if largely forgotten, moment in U.S.-Saudi affairs. And it is a rare example of an American president using his leverage, and in this case, not only leverage, but the power of personal persuasion to convince the foreign leader uh, to change human rights practices in a positive direction. The tension between human rights and strategic interests is perennial in American foreign policy, and one that has challenged multiple administrations when dealing with Saudi Arabia over the years, right through to the presidencies of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And no case would prove more vexing than that which emerged in the aftermath of the death of Jamal Khashoggi. What to do about a Saudi leader who U.S. officials determined had sanctioned murder? And not just any murder, an unusually gruesome state-sponsored assassination of a journalist who lived in the United States and wrote for one of this country's premier newspapers. And as complicated and imperfect as he was, a journalist whose only real crime was criticizing the powerful prince who ruled his country. How do we respond to that? How should we? I'm Michael Isikoff. We'll explore those questions in this final episode of Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land, The Secret Lives and Brutal Death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is Episode 8, The Anatomy of a Cover-Up. As a reminder of where we began this story in episode one, late on the afternoon of October 2nd, 2018, Hatice Chengiz was getting nervous. She had been pacing back and forth, waiting patiently outside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul for her fiancé, Jamal Khashoggi, to come out. Khashoggi had entered at 1.13 p.m. for what he expected would be a short visit to pick up some papers proving he was divorced from his wife back in Saudi Arabia, thereby allowing him to marry Hatice in Turkey. But nearly three hours later, there was still no sign of Jamal. Hatice called the consulate's main number, explaining she was waiting for him outside their front door. Where is he, she asked. A little after 4 p.m., a consulate security official emerged. 
He came out here. And he asked me who you are. But he was really fear in his face. He shocked. The security guard's reaction was a sign the Saudis now had their own reason to worry. There was a witness who could say Jamal went in and never came out. And from his face, I start afraid. And then he told me there is no one inside the consulate. And then I scared a lot. And then I, I felt my, my body is cold, colder, colder. And my heart uh, was racing. Jamal had told her before he went in that if there was any problem, she should call a friend of his, Yasin Akte, a high-ranking figure in Turkish President Recep Erdogan's Justice and Development Party. Hatice did. She told me that Jamal went to the consulate and he hadn't come out. Akte first called one of Jamal's Saudi friends, another Saudi exile living in Istanbul. When he told him Jamal had disappeared inside the consulate, the friend erupted in anger. I said, don't be angry to me. I'm, I'm just telling you. He, he went to the concert and, he, and he, he couldn't come out. What is it? Do you think that that's a problem? Of course, it's a problem. And how many times we said him not to go to the consulates? Now Akte started to worry. He called Erdogan's office. He rang the chief of Turkish intelligence. He even called the Saudi ambassador in Ankara, who promised to immediately look into what happened to Khashoggi and get right back to him. But I waited but about two hours, two hours, three hours, no, no ways. Then we, after about, it was about eight o'clock, I think. Then we, we started to be sure that there is really something, something very, very wrong. While Yasin Akte and Turkish officials were desperately trying to figure out what had happened, the Saudi tiger team of assassins that was inside was getting frantic as well. There was evidence to dispose of. As you may remember from the first episode in this series, Khashoggi had been injected with a lethal dose of a powerful narcotic, which the Saudi assassins had acquired during a stopover in Cairo, Egypt, on their way to Istanbul. Then he was suffocated and his body carved up into pieces with a bone saw and deposited in plastic bags. As you also may remember, we found intriguing details about what happened next from the notes of statements by Saudi prosecutors based on secret interrogations of Khashoggi's murderers. We discovered these in Turkish court records and had them translated for this podcast. The records show that to throw authorities off the trail, a member of the Tiger team, a big man who looked a bit like Khashoggi, had changed into his clothes and put on his glasses. He then headed out into Sultan Ahmet Square, one of the city's main tourist attractions, site of the world-famous Blue Mosque. Once there, he went inside a toilet at the mosque and changed back into his own clothes and then dumped Jamal's in a garbage bin outside in the square. Another member of the Tiger team removed the hard drives from the video cameras inside the consulate, smashed them into bits, and then drove around Istanbul himself, tossing the remains of the hard drives into various trash cans. But there was still a bigger problem. What to do with those plastic bags containing Jamal's dismembered body? I asked Agnes Calamard, the UN special rapporteur who investigated Khashoggi's murder. She immediately cited the lame early claims by Saudi officials 
that they had no idea what happened to Khashoggi's remains. What happened to Jamal Khashoggi's body? The explanation given by Saudi Arabia just do not add up. It's almost, uh, it's taking us for a bunch of idiots, to be honest, to suggest that they lost the body. But the details I found from those Saudi interrogations provide some clues. They show that three of the suspects loaded the plastic bags of body parts into the trunk of a Mercedes sedan that was waiting outside the consulate. They then drove to the residence of the Saudi consul general. There, according to separate testimony taken by the Turks, a technician who worked at the home recalled that members of the Tiger team struggled to ignite a tandoor oven by the outdoor pool. The technician recalled joking to the Saudi operatives that they should slow down. Don't fall inside the tandoor or else you'll become kebab, he told them, unaware of the gruesome irony of the joke. Turkish authorities later reported that smoke was coming from the backyard of the consulate that night. Some part of the body may have been burned in the residence of the consul in uh, where there uh, was uh, one of those furnaces which burn at very high temperature. However, not everything could be disappeared through the furnace, so that also raised the question of what happened to the bones and, um, and other remains uh, of Jamal Khashoggi. Kalamard's report states that members of the Saudi Tiger team flew off from Istanbul's airport on two private jets that evening. One of them, carrying Muhar Mutreb, the team leader, stopped off again in Cairo, where they had originally picked up the lethal narcotics used in Jamal's murder. Their luggage was supposed to have been screened by airport security in Istanbul. But, says Calamard, she has reason to believe that some of Khashoggi's bones, possibly including his severed head, may have been smuggled onto one of those two planes undetected. I was told that the machine that was used to screen the luggage was not properly working or that uh, there were no photos available anymore and that it may not have been calibrated to capture the kind of remains we are talking about. So all in all, um, if they went through at that point, it is possible that they could have carried some of the remains of Jamal. Not all, but uh, maybe. Maybe. What's become of those body parts since is anybody's guess. When it first happened, we did not know what the story was. Kirsten Fontenrose was director for Gulf Affairs at the National Security Council responsible for coordinating U.S. policy to Saudi Arabia. She knew Khashoggi. They had been introduced by a mutual friend, and every few weeks they would meet for coffee near the White House. So she was more than a little invested when the first reports came in about his disappearance. But within a couple of days, there was video footage released of the Khashoggi body double leaving the consulate, and it suddenly dawned on her and her colleagues that this actually could have been a murder. Was that a was that a moment? I mean, like, you know, oh, my God, what's going on here? Oh, yeah, it definitely was one of those, you know, everyone staring at this at the TV screen. And when that footage kept playing, all of us were looking at each other thinking, you know, and saying, OK, does this mean they premeditated this? Is this what we're looking at here? Because this 
is a disaster. This is crazy. Can this, can this really be happening? And the first words from Riyadh were maddening. On Monday, October 5th, three days after the murder, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, gave an interview to Bloomberg News. He insisted that Khashoggi had left the consulate and denied knowing anything about what happened to him. Three days later, on October 8th, his brother, Khalid bin Salman, the ambassador to the United States, released a statement saying the reports that Khashoggi had been detained or killed were, quote, absolutely false and baseless. It was the first of a series of ever-shifting Saudi denials that all had one purpose, to deflect responsibility from the all-powerful crown prince. We have made it very clear that Saudi Arabia's government is not involved in this. This was an unfortunate accident. We have said that uh, this was a rogue operation, that it was not authorized. Senator Bob Corker, a Republican from Tennessee, who was then the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was skeptical from the start. I immediately picked up the phone and was patched through to the ambassador. Corker hadn't yet seen the video of the Khashoggi lookalike leaving the consulate. But when he spoke to the ambassador, he honed in on a different point. Why don't the Saudis pull the tapes of the security cameras from inside the consulate and release those? Surely that would clear things up. The ambassador's response flummoxed him. That's when he said that, you know, that they live streamed them only, they didn't record. I don't know how many embassies I've traveled to around the world as chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, everything is taped. It would be ridiculous to have a live streaming camera. Everything is taped. I mean, there are surveillance tapes that are kept. They're probably doubled up even. I mean, that's just uh, that's just not a normal protocol and did not make any sense. Now, it could be that they're the only country in the world that operates that way, but uh, it, it did not pass, pass the uh, straight face test. He flat out lied to you. Uh, From my perspective, uh, that's what I felt he had done, absolutely. Of course, when Corker had that conversation with the Saudi ambassador, he had no idea what we discovered during the course of researching this podcast, that the hard drives of the security cameras inside the consulate had been removed, smashed, and thrown away in dumpsters on the streets of Istanbul. There's little question that Khashoggi's disappearance presented the Trump White House with an exceedingly awkward dilemma. The president and his top aides had been determined to strengthen the U.S. alliance with the Saudis. It was a centerpiece of Trump's strategy in the Middle East. The Saudis were regional foes of the Iranian mullahs, and Trump was trying to ramp up pressure on Tehran. The Saudis were committed to buying hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. weapons, providing big profits for giant U.S. defense contractors, and tens of thousands of jobs for American workers. And the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, had developed a cozy relationship with the crown prince, dining with him in Riyadh, exchanging WhatsApp messages, and gently coaxing him to help out with his grand mission of forging an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal. But the murder of a well-known journalist who wrote for the Washington Post was a problem, to say the least. Even before Trump himself could weigh in, Kushner and National Security Advisor John Bolton got on the phone with MBS and, according to Bolton, pressed him for answers, but only up to a point. Did you ask him directly, did you do this? 
No, I didn't because I hadn't spoken to the president at that point. And I felt what I did say, and uh, Jared was there during the call, and my comment was pretty much as I've reported it, get the full story out, whatever the full story is. But it was not for me, a, I think, uh, something that I wanted to raise before I knew what direction Trump was going to go in. White House officials insisted that Trump, even while saying nothing to publicly criticize MBS, also pressed the Saudis for answers. Kristen Fontenrose, who monitored the calls, says that's the case. And we had multiple phone calls. The president had multiple calls with MBS and with King Salman, specifically asking them, did you know anything about this? The president would flat out ask, I mean, up to a dozen times on any individual phone call, whether it was with King Salman or with MBS or, or both of them, did you have any knowledge of this operation? Did you know this was going to happen? Did you give this order? Did you? And every time it was, no, 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 we didn't know anything and we're still looking and we're still searching. And, you know, yes, Donald, we totally understand this makes things difficult for you. And we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of it and we'll share everything we learn. And this was definitely horrible and we're investigating. One piece of intelligence in particular had gotten the president's attention. U.S. officials had concluded that there was indeed a bone saw that was used to carve up Khashoggi's body, and it was believed to have been brought in on the plane that flew the Tiger team to Istanbul. But, I mean, he would go back to it and back to it and back to it, trying to press them and telling them, you know, this will change, this will change everything, you guys. We got to know, we're with you. We're standing behind Saudi Arabia. We love the things that you're doing in other ways, but we've got to get to the bottom of this. Was there a bone saw? Was there a bone saw? And the Saudi response? We don't know. We're still investigating. We're trying to find out exactly whether there was one. We've heard the same things you have, but we, we need to find out. Okay, because you know that would change everything. I've been in difficult negotiations. I've never had to take a bone saw. Mike, to Secretary Pompeo, have you ever had to take a bone saw to negotiations? No, Mr. President. Ha, ha, you know. And pressing, pressing, pressing. And every time, no, 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 Donald, we didn't know anything about it. We're still trying to get to the bottom of this. But if Trump had any doubts about what the Saudis were telling him, he wasn't sharing that with the American public or the world. Speaking to reporters earlier today, the president seemed to indicate he was at least open to, if not outright supportive, of the denials of any involvement issued by Saudi Arabia. He even seemed to invent a new explanation for the killing. Rogue killers. I just spoke with the king of Saudi Arabia who denies any knowledge of what took place with regard to, as he said, his Saudi Arabian citizen. It sounded to me like maybe these could have been rogue killers. Who knows? For Bolton, the national security advisor, the direction from the president was clear. I think this was a case where Trump very decisively and flatly decided he was going to continue to support uh, the Saudis on a very realpolitik basis. That's unpleasant, to be sure, but we live in an unpleasant world. And uh, for me, the, the correctness of that approach was proven in a meeting I had with Putin in Moscow a short time thereafter, where Putin, always in uh, good humor and has a laugh to spare, said, look, if you don't want to sell arms to the Saudis, fine, don't do it, I'll sell them arms. Look, I think uh, Trump knew and acted on the assumption that the highest levels of the royal family were involved in it, and he made his decision in any event. And at that point, the, the issue was closed for the rest of us, for Mike Pompeo, for myself. The president had made up his mind. 
When I talked to Bolton, I read to him from a passage in his book, The Room Where It Happened, that caught my attention. You write in the book, in hard-nosed geopolitical terms, Trump's was the only sensible approach. No one excused Khashoggi's murder, and few doubted it was a serious mistake. But whether or not you like Saudi Arabia, the monarchy, we had significant U.S. national interests at stake. I guess for, you know, some of us when we read that, calling it a serious mistake, is it a mistake? Is a murder a mistake or a crime? Well, as Talleyrand, the uh, iconic French foreign minister, once said, referring to a particular incident, he said, it's worse than a crime, it's a mistake. By mid-November, the CIA was finishing up its own assessment of Khashoggi's murder. It had nailed down the identities of the Tiger Team assassins. Seven of them were members of something called the Rapid Intervention Force, MBS's personal security detail answerable only to him. It had reviewed the Turkish audio tapes in which the team leader, Mutreb, an intelligence officer who had frequently accompanied MBS on his trips abroad, had referred to Khashoggi as a sacrificial animal and discussed ways to carve up his body before he even walked into the consulate. Agency analysts had also nailed down the central role of Saud al-Qahtani, MBS's enforcer and Khashoggi's longtime tormentor. Katani had met with the Tiger team before it left for Istanbul, and he had communicated with them immediately afterwards. In the days before and after the operation, agency officials confirmed Katani had up to a dozen phone calls with MBS himself. We had hard smoking gun that Katani directed his team to get on that plane and come over. And once we learned that the bone saw was on the plane and some things like that, that let us put together that, yeah, we had hard smoking gun evidence about him speaking with his team. Speaking with the team during, during the operation. During the operation. Mm -hmm. While it was going on, inside the consulate, he's on the phone with them. Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the specifics there, but we do know that he was involved with speaking with them in you know the, the days surrounding the operation. But, says Fontenrose, the CIA did not have smoking gun evidence, no intercept of a phone call, for example, proving that MBS himself had ordered Khashoggi's murder. He could have conceivably ordered a rendition or kidnapping that his underlings then decided on their own to turn into an assassination. But, based on everything the CIA knew about how Saudi Arabia operated and the personal control that MBS had over everybody that worked for him, the agency concluded with medium to high confidence that the crown prince had approved the operation that killed Khashoggi. It was more than enough for Bob Corker, the Foreign Relations Committee chairman, after he got briefed on the agency's assessment. I have zero question in my mind that the uh, crown prince, MBS, ordered the killing, monitored the killing, uh, knew exactly what was happening, planned it in advance. If he was in front of a jury, he would be convicted in 30 minutes. But for Corker, the most disgraceful moment came on the White House lawn just a few days after Trump received that CIA report. The president made it clear that there would be no diplomatic protest, no sanctions on MBS, no freezing of his assets, no cutback in arms sales, no change in U.S. dealings with the kingdom, no consequences for Saudi Arabia as a result of the killing at all. If we abandoned Saudi Arabia, it would be a terrible mistake. They're buying hundreds of billions of dollars worth of things from this country. If I say we don't want to take your business, if I say we're going to cut it off, they will get the equipment 
military equipment and other things from Russia and China. And I'm not going to tell a country that's spending hundreds of billions of dollars and has helped me do one thing very importantly, keep oil prices down so that they're not going to $100 and $150 a barrel. And I'm not going to destroy the economy for our country by being foolish with Saudi Arabia. So I think the statement, wait a minute, I think the statement was pretty obvious what I said. It's about America first. To equate the probable murder of a journalist who worked for a U.S. institution to equate that with our ability to, to sell arms and and the money we we're going to make, the money that U.S. companies would make doing so, it just was uh, it was hard to believe that any any president would, if you will, stoop to that level of equivocation, if you will. It was a low moment, in my opinion, as far as the moral leadership of the United States of America. As for that CIA assessment. The lack of an intercept capturing MBS giving a kill order was all Trump needed to sow doubt and let the crown prince off the hook. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. The CIA has looked at it, they've studied it a lot. They have nothing definitive. We are with Saudi Arabia, we're staying with Saudi Arabia. And by the way, just so everybody, I have no business whatsoever with Saudi Arabia. Couldn't care less. Trump, of course, would later tell Bob Woodward that When it came to MBS, I saved his ass. Did you accept the intelligence assessment from the CIA? Look, I I thought that uh, the assessment was not complete. I think that was a view shared by Mike Pompeo. But as I say, when, when the president makes up his mind, whether he makes it on the basis of an intelligence assessment, you agree with or or your own opinion or anything else there wasn't anything further to discuss discuss he had moved with surprising speed and uh, foreclosed any further discussion in effect and as for mbs bolton had this to say franklin roosevelt once said of anastasio somoza central american dictator he may be an sob but he's our sob i'm with roosevelt on this Uh, i don't know where the rest of you all are but that's that's just the way it goes are you saying that MBS is your SOB? No, I'm saying he's the U.S.'s SOB. That's that's the way this is structured here. And uh, if somebody's got a different idea of how to deal with Saudi Arabia, then then let's hear it. Just three days after Khashoggi's murder, a somewhat surprising email popped up in my inbox from a woman named Fatma, identifying herself as a spokesperson for the Saudi embassy in Washington. Dear Michael, I hope this message finds you and yours well, it read, although Fatma and I had never actually met. Please find an invitation from HRH Prince Khalid bin Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, ambassador of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, for a reception to celebrate the National Day of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on Thursday, October 18th. We hope you can join us to celebrate this historic occasion. Talk about awkward timing. An invitation from MBS's brother. I RSVP'd, of course. I was eager to see whether the usual bevy of lobbyists, congressmen, diplomats, arms dealers, and other assorted hangers-on who usually show up for these sorts of embassy events would dare to do so at a time when much of the civilized world was expressing its horror at what the Saudis had just done. 
Ten days later, I got a follow-up email from my new friend at the embassy, advising me, with no explanation, that the reception had been canceled. It was an early sign that, Donald Trump notwithstanding, the Saudis were facing a bumpy road ahead, at least for a while. It's been nicknamed Davos in the Desert. The second annual Saudi investment conference begins Tuesday in Riyadh. That October, there was yet another of MBS's grand showcases for his economic reforms. But in the aftermath of Khashoggi, the guests were dropping like flies. Some of the corporations pulling out of the conference include Ford, Uber, and Virgin. Media giants CNN, The New York Times, Bloomberg, and others have also turned down their invite. The Saudis, it seemed, had for the moment become world pariahs. In Washington, the big lobbying firms that Al-Qahtani had hired, BGR, Squire Patton Boggs, and others, terminated their contracts. And corporate moguls like Hollywood super agent Ari Emanuel pulled out of business deals they had signed with the kingdom. All the more reason for the Saudis, in January 2019, to make a show of putting Khashoggi's murderers on trial themselves. It was a proceeding whose real purpose seemed to be protecting MBS and its henchman Al-Qahtani at all costs. Good to have you with us on Al Jazeera. First, 11 suspects in the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi have faced court in Saudi Arabia for the very first time. Now, the Saudi prosecutor is seeking the death penalty for five of the accused. The Saudi trial was absurd by Western standards. All of it behind closed doors, no press allowed, no human rights monitors, no court record made public. Still, as we told you in the first episode in this series, there was actually some important evidence presented and then written down by observers from the Turkish embassy who were allowed inside. The Turkish embassy officials took notes, then passed them along to prosecutors in Istanbul who entered excerpts as part of a 117-page indictment for a separate Turkish trial in absentia of Khashoggi's murderers. Those notes show that Katani had indeed met with the Tiger team before it left for Istanbul and told them that Khashoggi was a threat to Saudi national security and that his return to Saudi Arabia would be a significant accomplishment. Katani's message could have been used to support the idea that the original mission of the Tiger team was a rendition, and something later went awry when Khashoggi resisted. But the notes also show that Mutreb, the on-the-ground team leader, confessed to changing the plan and ordering Khashoggi's assassination instead, before Khashoggi ever stepped into the consulate. It's not a move anybody in the U.S. intelligence community thought he would likely have taken on his own or failed to report up the chain to Katani and the Crown Prince. That guy doesn't make decisions to to kill somebody like Khashoggi. That's Richard Clark. Once one of the U.S. government's top national security officials, he served as counter-terror advisor to Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, he's now chairman of the Middle East Institute, a Washington think tank. The decision to kill Khashoggi has to go all the way to the top. Because Khashoggi is a protected person. He's a person who used to hang out with the royalty at at the very top. You don't make that decision at, at, at anything other than the, the highest levels. And then there's that late-night stopover in Cairo to pick up the illegal drug that was used. Who in Cairo would have turned over the narcotic to the Saudi hit team? Conceivably, it could have been Saudi agents at the airport. But Clark believes there's a more likely suspect. Egyptian intelligence under the firm control of Abed Fattah el-Sisi, 
the Egyptian president and former military officer whose 2013 coup the Saudis had backed to the max. I think there's a hell of a lot of Saudi government money that goes into propping up Sisi. And you can get, you know, you can get a lot in, in return for that money. I don't think they had to reveal the target. Just like, hey, uh, you know, you've got this stuff in your inventory. We ran out. Uh, can we stop by and, and, and you know, and, and get a few sticks of butter? I think that the answer that for the Egyptians, that's a no-brainer. A spokesman for the Egyptian embassy did not respond to questions about all this, and neither did spokesmen and officials of the Saudi government respond to anything related to this podcast. But based on the notes from the Saudi trial, there's no indication that the Tiger Team assassins were even asked any questions at all about who their apparent accomplices were in Cairo. It's also true that, according to the Turkish observers who took those notes, the accused Tiger Team assassins didn't seem to take the proceeding too seriously. The nonchalant behavior of the defendants who were brought to the courtroom without handcuffs and shackles has drawn attention, one of the Turkish observers noted. And in the end, although their lawyers insisted they were only following orders to bring Khashoggi back to Saudi Arabia, five of them, including Mutrib, were convicted of his murder and sentenced to death, a sentence that was later commuted to 20 years. And two Saudis, both with close government ties and longtime sources for U.S. intelligence officials, tell me that none of those convicted are actually behind bars or living in anything that resembles a real prison. Instead, according to these accounts, the convicts are currently residing in a luxury compound outside Riyadh. And some of them, including Dr. Salah Tabegi, the forensic doctor who administered the lethal dose of drugs that killed Khashoggi, have been spotted recently working out in the gym. But the most important point of all about that Saudi trial is that, at least based on the notes I reviewed, there were no apparent references to MBS at all. And Katani, the MBS henchman in charge of the whole operation, never showed up or was even questioned, much less convicted. Kirsten Fontenrose was outraged by the Saudi trial, especially about the lack of any punishment of Katani. And he was completely exonerated which was infuriating and I think a farce and frankly, I think an insult to the U.S.-Saudi relationship. You know, the, the rest of the folks were operatives, and, but they were not calling any shots. So I was watching very closely the results of the Sakatani um, discussion. And when he was let off the hook, I thought, this is a sign that NBS feels like he has impunity. But doesn't that suggest to you if, if the if letting Saad al-Qahtani off the hook is a indication that MBS has impunity, doesn't that suggest that he was being protected because he's the man who knew too much? I think he was being protected because MBS considers him invaluable because he is the one person he completely trusts and because he will do all of the unsavory tasks. How unsavory? I assume, up to murder. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the Crown Prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. And so they have to be held accountable. Joe Biden couldn't have been clearer when he was running for president. 
he would make the Saudis pay a price for Khashoggi's murder. But when he had a chance to do so last February, the price was, at best, a pretty marginal one. Biden's new director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, did release a report that had been withheld by the Trump White House, finding that MBS did approve an operation to capture or kill Khashoggi. But the report was skimpy, providing few new details about the intelligence that led to the CIA's conclusion. There were also no new sanctions imposed on any high-ranking Saudi leaders, including MBS, no travel ban or freezing of any of his assets, no cutoff of weapon sales, only a review and a commitment to curb the sale of offensive weapons that could be used in the Saudi war in Yemen. That afternoon, Secretary of State Antony Blinken got repeated questions about the administration response at a State Department press conference. Given the fact that the CIA has concluded that Mohammed bin Salman personally approved the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, um, can you explain why he is not being punished in these decisions? And especially since president, when he was a candidate, told me during a debate that he would make Saudi Arabia a pariah. Well, Andre, I think the report speaks, uh, speaks for itself. And uh, I think you've seen uh, today a number of very uh, important steps to uh, recalibrate uh, the relationship. Blinken then defended the White House response, noting it had released the intelligence report, as sketchy as it was, and it had sanctioned a former head of Saudi intelligence, Ayman Asiri, a top MBS advisor who we told you about in episode five of this podcast, who cut off reporters' access to Saudi military activities in Yemen. The Biden administration had also announced what Blinken called a Khashoggi ban on visas to the U.S. from Saudis believed to be involved in threatening or intimidating dissidents overseas. But then he added, More broadly, I would say the relationship with, with, with Saudi Arabia is an important one. We have significant uh, ongoing interests. We remain committed to the defense uh, of the kingdom. So what we've done by the actions that we've taken uh, is really not to rupture the relationship, but to recalibrate it, to be more in line with our interests uh, and our values. This is bigger than any one uh, person. The questions from reporters continued. One quick thing on, on Mohammed bin Salman. Can the U.S. still do business with him? You have fallen short of punishing the very person that is responsible for this. How is that not counter to your actions to ensure accountability elsewhere in the future? As I said uh, earlier, the relationship with Saudi Arabia is bigger than any uh, one individual. Uh, the president engaged, uh, as you know, uh, with King Salman. Uh, I've spoken to my uh, counterpart, the foreign minister, um, and uh, Secretary Austin has spoken to his counterpart, who happens to be Mohammed bin Salman. You heard that last part right. Just days before the release of the DNI report concluding that MBS personally approved the operation that killed Khashoggi, Biden's Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, called his counterpart the very same crown prince, MBS, who had just been accused by the administration of murder but who is still the Saudi defense minister. The purpose of the call, according to a Pentagon readout, it was to, quote, reaffirm the strategic defense partnership between the United States and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Good evening. 
When I started to write my remarks today, I realized that I didn't really want to address you. I wanted to address Jamal. It was October 28, 2018, a little more than three weeks after Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Sarah Lee Whitson, then the Middle East director for Human Rights Watch, spoke at a memorial service in London for her friend. Dear Jamal, I wanted to give you a progress report on our efforts to capture and punish the cowardly, ignorant, but still powerful murderers who plotted to kill you. By then, the conspiracy to cover up the murder of the most famous journalist in the Middle East was already unraveling. The daily lies of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, lies he's had to peddle in response to our global outrage, have crumpled under the weight of their own stupidity. Whitson demanded that MBS and the Saudi Kingdom would be held accountable for the most brazen of human rights abuses. She also captured how much of the world had come to view Jamal Khashoggi. Jamal, I know these past two years were not easy. You took the risk to stand by your principles and your freedom and your voice by fleeing your homeland to write freely. I know this was such a painful choice for you and your family, but you would not bow down. You never did, actually, as your numerous firings and bans and suspensions from various newspaper posts in Saudi would attest. And generations of Saudi children will remember you and esteem you as the Saudi man who did not bow down, the Saudi man who raised his voice, the Saudi man who took a detour for love, the Saudi man who paid for his freedom with his life. As you've heard over the course of this podcast, Jamal Khashoggi was a complicated and in some ways a confounding figure. In his youth, he associated with the Muslim Brotherhood and championed the exploits in Afghanistan of a man who was then his good friend, Osama bin Laden. Later, he served as the media advisor to the former chief of Saudi intelligence, arousing suspicions among dissidents for years that he was anything but an independent journalist. There's no question, though, that by the end of his life, he had stood up and spoken out against an all-powerful crown prince whose efforts to modernize his kingdom were overshadowed by his dark authoritarian impulses. And yet, Whitson says now, nearly three years later, justice in this case remains as elusive as ever. I would say it's a real disappointment and a real lost opportunity. Whitson now heads a group called Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. It was founded by Khashoggi himself in the year before his murder. She argues that the failure of two U.S. administrations to impose any meaningful cost for what happened sent a message not just to MBS, but to murderous dictators around the world. It's a lost opportunity for serious accountability that would have made not only journalists safer, but many, many people around the world safer from people like Mohammed bin Salman, who now see that they can get away with it. Since Khashoggi's murder, Saad al-Jabri, a former top Saudi counter-terror official who worked closely with the CIA, has filed a lawsuit accusing MBS of sending a separate Saudi tiger team to assassinate him in Canada. The Saudis deny this, but there seems little doubt that authoritarians around the world seem emboldened. 
This May, Belarus strongman Alexander Lukashenko literally plucked a dissident journalist from the sky, diverting a commercial airliner flying over his country's airspace so the reporter could be imprisoned and forced to confess to supposed crimes against the state. Here's Agnes Calamard again. You know, it, it, it is an important statement, and I want to repeat it. We live in a world where a range of governments violate human rights. They do that on a regular basis, on a daily basis. What is striking to me and what distinguishes probably this decade from previous one is the capacity of the rest of the world to turn a blind eye to the violations that are being committed. But there are small steps that can still be taken. In Congress, there is legislation to impose a travel ban on MBS, effectively barring him from entering the United States again. And there's another, a more modest, but perhaps more meaningful proposal. A member of the Washington, D.C. City Council, Brooke Pinto, has introduced a bill to rename the street where the Saudi embassy is located in Washington, D.C. It's right across from the Watergate, and Pinto's bill would rename that portion of the street Khashoggi Way, with signage that the Saudi embassy staff would see every day they enter and leave the building. A tyrant like Mohammed bin Salman can't do it alone. He needs complicit, servile agents around him. It's going to be a constant, embarrassing and shameful reminder for what their government did, what their government leadership did, and what they stayed silent about. The bill is expected to be taken up by the Washington, D.C. City Council this summer. I'm Michael Isikoff. Thanks for listening. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout-out to the folks at Long Story Short. Executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And, of course, LSS Chief Jessica Stewart. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.